The world is working really hard to make you and I to believe that we just have a, well, to put it today, an Easter Bunny faith. You know, we just, it's a baseless, it's a, it's an empty faith and it's an empty belief. But I want you to know that what we believe is rational and there's evidence to support it. There's proof. It's not just whimsical. It's not believing in Bigfoot. It's believing in a true and a living God and there's and it's rational to do that. We're not stupid for believing God. Or crazy. Or crazy. We might be crazy, but it's not because of that reason. <laughs> Matthew chapter 21, and you know this story, and, uh, and I guess this isn't going to be a typical resurrection message. It's going to be a message about the whole thing leading up to it. And some amazing proofs that I think will build your faith. It builds my faith as I'm studying as I'm getting ready. Some of you might recognize it because I did something similar a couple of years ago. So you might recognize some of it, but I wanted to do it on PowerPoint this time so you can take notes. I was going to have handouts, but I didn't get that far. <laughs> Took me too long to get the rest of it together. Matthew chapter 21. Everyone there? Did you bring your sword? Everybody brought your sword. You brought arms ready for battle. Matthew chapter 21. And when they drove nigh unto Jerusalem, and they were come to Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, and sent Jesus to disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled. That's, that's key right there. That it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and the colt, and the the foal of an ass. And the disciples went, and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strewed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he has come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Hallelujah. Father, direct today, Lord, fill my mind, my, my spirit with your spirit. God, help me to give something to your people that they need today. And I give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You don't mind? I'm going to take a quick drink of water. I was singing. When we talk about what was going on in Jerusalem during that time, when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, it was Passover week. This is not a minor event. In Israel, this is a huge event, it is, as it is to the, in this day. Of course, that is not an ancient picture; that is a modern picture. But it gives the idea. And even in the days of Jesus, when he came to to Jerusalem during Passover week, it is estimated that there were about two and a half million people in Jerusalem at that time. The place was crowded. It was a it was a huge, amazing event. And you know what took place with the triumphal entry? What we just read here, where Jesus 
sat upon a donkey, rode into town. This event is what made the religious ruler so angry at him. you got to realize religion and power have always gone together. It shouldn't always be that way, but unfortunately that's how it is. And you can see even from our history as Americans how we came out of England because of the power of the Church of of England and and uh, the, the the authority that they had and our people broke away uh, and came to America and, and and that's how we started out but this triumphal entry to them was it, it appeared to them that they were going to lose power it angered them this guy Jesus is riding into town on a donkey he is fulfilling prophecy people are throwing out palm branches and and worshiping and hailing him and it infuriated them that's what lit the fire that made them want to kill Jesus that week that's what happened now let's back up way back in Genesis we see in Genesis chapter 3 uh, verse 15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is when uh, the, the Adam and Eve had fallen into sin. God was pronouncing a curse on the, on the serpent, and on, basically on Satan. And he said, uh, I will put that enmity. There's never going to be consensus between the two. Why? Because Satan and God are two completely different powers. Let me tell you what. There's only two powers in the universe. God and Satan. That's it. That's where the powers are. Either you serve God or you serve Satan. Those are the only two options in this whole thing. And, but, but see what he says there. And, and it shall bruise thy head. A head wound is unto death. He's basically saying, you're going to be killed. You're going to be destroyed. But thou shall bruise his heel. You are going to injure him. He's, he's given a prophecy. It's the first prophecy of Christ. He's telling him that Satan is going to injure the heel of Christ, but Christ is going to kill Satan. It's going to destroy him. It is the beginning of the seed. The woman is the beginning of the seed. And I want to follow this here real quickly. Cain killed Abel. Cain could not carry the seed because he was corrupted because of that. So... The seed went from the woman to Seth. From Seth, we can trace it down to Noah, who had Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Uh, and this story about Noah is not about a boat. It is so much bigger than all of that. It is about the, the seed being passed down. It is about God uh, transferring or, or creating that, that bloodline. Ham sinned against the fathers. The seed went to Shem. You can go from there to Terah. Uh, who begat Abraham. And you see that Abraham tried to help God out. Things weren't going right. He wasn't having any kids. So he uh, had this situation with a concubine and ended up with Ishmael. But God said, no, that's not going to work. That's not the way it's going to happen. So God took care of the situation and provided Isaac. And the seed went to Isaac. And then you can trace it down to Jacob and Esau who battled even in the womb. They, they fought continually. And, and you know the story where Jacob the deceiver swindled Esau out of the blessing. The bloodline went to Jacob. And from Jacob, uh, his name was later changed to Israel. It says, that, as a prince hast thou power with God and man and hast prevailed. He had 12 sons. And I'm going through this kind of quickly just to set a stage here. He had 12 sons. In Genesis 49, Israel reveals the character of his children. I'll go over just a couple of them. Reuben, 
Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, and the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel. That's something that you want to hear from your daddy. <laughs> you are going to be a big fat failure. Sorry, son, hate to tell you. Because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, thou then defilest thou it. He went up to my couch. And then you go to Simon and Levi. And it says, Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitation. O my soul, come not thou to, into their secret, unto their assembly. Mine honor, be, thou, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a well. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and in their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. God was not going to pass the bloodline down through those two. So who did he go to? Judah. We come to Judah. And he says, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp, and from the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? But look at this. This is where it's at. Put this in your brain. This is where it gets interesting. Look at this. It says, The sepulcher shall not depart from Judah. Here's the key of what this whole message today is about. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Who's Shiloh? Jesus, the Messiah. Until Shiloh come, and unto him shall be the gathering of the people shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass is called unto the choice vine. God is making a point here about Judah. Here's what he's telling us about him. Number one, Judah will be the royal tribe. It will be the one that the bloodline comes through, the tribe of Judah. It's not going to go through any other tribe. From Judah, Shiloh will come. The Messiah will come through the bloodline of Judah. The people will gather unto him. Is this sounding familiar? And he will bind the foal to the vine. This is all going to happen in the tribe of Judah, which is vitally important into this. The bloodline goes from Judah, and you trace it all the way to David. And when you, and let me back up a second. He says that he'll gather the people onto him. And he says that he'll bind the foal to a vine, which is basically a prophecy in John 15, where it says, I am the vine and you are the branches. It's a binding of that branches and the vine together. The foal to himself, bringing that, that foal to himself. And so the scene continues to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David wanted to build a temple, but God said, no, you're not going to build a temple. Because you are a man of war. So Nathan came with a prophecy and told him that it's not going to be you that builds the temple, but it's going to be your son. And when the days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee and shall proceed out of thy bowels and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But in my mercy shall not, but my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. Listen, 
Thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So we have a bloodline. What is this bloodline? It goes all the way. The lineage so far goes from the woman to Seth to Noah to Shem to Judah and now to David. Now the story gets really interesting now that I set the stage. This is, the, this is where it starts, the rubber meets the road. Only the Messiah could live forever, right? When God told David, that, blood, that, that bloodline will never depart from you forever. He's not talking about a human, because humans die. He's talking about the Messiah. And after David, you know the story, <coughs> Israel turns to great turmoil and, and a big mess. <coughs> Forgive me. Uh, and although the, the prophets predicted government should be upon his shoulders... And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. They also predicted 70 years of captivity. This was prophesied. Daniel in, the, in Babylon uh, predicts, in Daniel chapter 9, 24, he sets a stage for the rest of the Bible. He gives something here that every Christian should know, but most Christians avoid because it's confusing. I'm going to try to make it not confusing today because this is incredibly interesting what happens here. Daniel 9.24 says, Seventy weeks are determined unto thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of the sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. God gives us a, some keys here that are vitally important. God gives Daniel a vision, and in that vision, he divides Israel's uh, time into 70 weeks. 70 actually is translated seven, which means weeks of years, or 70 sevens. Follow me here. I hope I'm not putting you to sleep. This is really cool. The prophecy states, you'll finish the transgression. What else? The end of sin. What else? Make reconciliation for iniquity. What else? Bring in everlasting righteousness. In a nutshell, all of your sins will be judged in 70 weeks. What is that? 70 weeks of years. This is what it all boils down to. 70 times 7 is 490 years. All right? Keep that in your brain. Verse 25 and 26 says, Now therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. This is key. This is amazing how this works out. From the going forth of the commander to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, and threescore and two weeks, and the street shall be built again, and the wall even in tro troublous times. Verse 26 says, And after threescore and two weeks shall M Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. This is a prophecy 500 years before Jesus. Notice what he said. The command was to build the city, not to build the temple. To build the city. Very important. So what are we looking for? We're looking for somewhere in history where a command was given to rebuild Jerusalem. That's the key. That's what's so vitally important in this. Daniel gives 70 weeks and three uneven divisions. Seven weeks or 49 years. Are you following me? 70 weeks of sevens. Seven times seven, 49. The streets and walls will be rebuilt in trouble sometimes. 62 weeks was 434 years, the cutting off of Shiloh, or the Messiah. 
cut off, taken violently is the definition of that. And then one week, seven years, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, the rising of iniquity, finishing the transgression, basically culminating with the abomination of desolation. 69 weeks have already happened. 70th week is basically the time of tribulation that is future. Some people believe it's starting today. I don't necessarily follow that. This is the, the timeline that's going on here. Total of 70 weeks. Daniel tells us when the Messiah will come. Uh, Daniel tells us when the Messiah will come. Jacob tells us that he will be from the tribe of Judah. All the people will be gathered unto him. He will be tied to a donkey. And Zechariah tells us, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the foal of an ass. This is what was prophesied. So what are we looking for? This is what we are to see the fulfillment of this. We're looking for a command to build the streets and the walls. We're looking for somebody who comes from the tribe of Judah. We're looking for somebody from the lineage of David. We're looking for somebody riding upon a donkey. We're looking for somebody who has everybody gathered onto him. Nehemiah gives us the key. Are you still with me? Yeah. I know this is like a college class. So <laughs> Pete ought to be right in here. Riveted. Living it. Nehemiah gives us something interesting here. Chapter 2. And I said unto the king. Now let me back up. Nehemiah was uh, the king's cupbearer. He was going around, his face was drawn, he was upset, he was obviously, uh, you know, something was really burdening him, and the king came to him and he said, what in the world is wrong with you, Nehemiah? Why do you look so upset? This was Nehemiah's response. <coughs> and I said to the king, if it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me to Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, for how long shall thy journey be? And when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I sent, set him a time. Verse 8 of that says, and, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, palace which pertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I entered into. The command to build the city was just given by King Artaxerxes, Clear back in the book of Nehemiah. That's what we were looking for. To determine the Messiah. We were looking for a command to be given to rebuild the city. Artaxerxes gave that command. <coughs> Nehemiah isn't going to build the, the temple. He's going to build the city. This is when the stopwatch starts. We know the time frame because if we can determine the day that Nehemiah got that command from Artaxerxes, we can determine the day that the Messiah was going to come on the scene. This is incredible. Nehemiah gives us the day. And it should come to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king. According to Hebrew tradition, when the day of the month is not specifically stated as an Artaxerxes decree, it is given to be the first day of the month. That's the way they did it in Hebrew. If you have some, you know, hey, we're going to go fishing on April 14th this year, uh, then that, you know, it was on the 14th. If somebody said, we're going to go fishing in April, and they didn't give a day, 
they knew, according to Hebrew tradition, it was the first day of the month. That, that's when you did it. This is on the first day of the month. Uh, you got to look at tradition and things that go with it. From that we know that Artaxerxes Lagamenes ascended to the throne, one of the long names, the, uh, ascended to the throne of the Medio Persian Empire in July of 465 BC. The 20th year of his reign would have began in July of 446 BC. The decree occurred approximately nine months later in the month of Nisan, which is our March-April area on our calendar. The very day that Artaxerxes' decree was the first day of the Hebrew month of Nisan in 445 BC. Are you asleep yet? First, we know 49 years to build the city. That takes us through Malachi, clear to the end of the Old Testament. After that, we have 62 weeks or 434 years, which is between Malachi and Matthew. This is the intertestamental years. Uh, this is the time that everything's silent. There's no scripture. There's nothing that, that we can rely on during that time. What we do have is what we call the Apocrypha, which <coughs> anybody who comes from a Catholic background will know what the Apocrypha is. And in fact, if you have a very old ver version of the King James Bible, you'll see the Apocrypha in it. The, the Apocrypha is historically accurate. We can get his historical events out of the Apocrypha, but it is not theologically accurate. It is not scripture, but it is a point of reference for us to understand things. And we know from that about the Maccabean revolt, where Israel was in war. This is what brought relevance to the Palms. Uh, in six, uh, in six, uh, 164 BC, they rebuilt the temple, dedicated it by the waving of Palms. In 141 BC, honor and independence gained under Simeon they honor him in a parade of palms. Coins in Old between Old and New Testaments were stamped with palms. This is what brought relevance to the palms. Sign the palms were the sign of victory and a commencement of a time of Shiloh, or a time of peace. Who are we looking for? We're looking for the Prince of Peace. Right? I'm trying to go through this fast because there's a lot of stuff here. From there... John 12 gives us Jesus' timetable. We already got the timetable of what Scripture prophesies for the day for that we could actually count it out. And I want you to understand, Pharisees and Sadducees, religious rulers, the chief priests, all those guys were smart guys. They knew Daniel's prophecy. They knew what happened in Nehemiah. They knew that. And you can bet that they knew when Messiah was going to come on the scene. They knew that. We know that the day before Palm Sunday, Jesus was in Bethany, according to John chapter 12. We know that six days before the Passover, uh, the next day is Palm Sunday. We know in, from Exodus chapter 12, the tenth day of Nisan, the lamb that is to be slaughtered is picked out. They choose the lamb on the tenth day of Nisan. And for four days you observe the lamb to make sure that that lamb is perfect and it is pure. It has no flaws. And on the 14th day of Nisan, they slay the lamb. That's when they kill the lamb. Sir Robert Anderson, former Scotland Yard detective turned theologian, did the, a study on this whole thing. He figured it out using, I don't know, calendars and writings and different things because he's a lot smarter than me. 
he figured out going clear back to the Jewish calendar, 360 days a year, 69 weeks, seven times 62, 483 years from Artaxerxes' command to rebuild the wall is 173,880 days. <laughs> That's very specific. Jesus was in Bethany on the ninth day of Nisan. He entered Jerusalem on the 10th day. Jesus entered Jerusalem exactly 173,880 days from the day that Artaxerxes gave the command to build the walls and the streets. This is how specific the prophecies in your Bible that you carry are. This is how amazing they are. They knew the day that the Messiah was going to come on the scene. You better believe those religious leaders knew. They counted up those 173,880 days. They knew when Messiah was going to come on the scene. They were looking. I, I believe that. He came into Jerusalem, according to this research, on April 6th of the year 32 AD. Cool. Isn't that cool? I think this is exciting. That's just because I have that kind of mind. What is the significance? All the people yelled, Hosanna. What does scripture tell us? All people were going to be gathered onto him. The son of David, he came from the bloodline, that pure bloodline that was traced clear back to Adam and Eve. And he was worshipped with palms. The donkey signifies the coming in peace. A, a horse signifies the coming of, in war. That's the difference. The religious rulers either fail to recognize or they fail to accept. You know, it's the same thing today. Same thing. There are very few people in America that don't have at least some knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, and, and when you see people arguing and fighting over Scripture, many times it's not about whether they, uh, that, that we don't know what Scripture says, it's that we don't like what Scripture says. <laughs> That's where the battle is. It's not that we don't know. It's, it's right there. You know, go be a cop. Pull somebody over from running the stop sign at one in the morning. They'll give you a hundred reasons why that stop sign doesn't really mean stop. <laughs> and you know what? As a cop, I don't care. To me, it still means stop. You can argue it however you want. And this is what they do with Scripture. But this is how absolutely relevant your Bible is. No, it hasn't been translated and retranslated and retranslated and retranslated and, uh, and all of the, you know, the, the accuracy taken out of it because of this and that. No, that's, that's false. That's erroneous. I've gotten into that in sermons before and maybe I'll do it again sometime. This word is valid and it's accurate and it's powerful and it laid out this path that God made so clear to us. But this is, it, it's not done. On the 10th day of Nisan, the lamb is chosen, according to Exodus. This year, the high priest chose the lamb. Get this. You've read this scripture and never even thought about it this way. Watch this. John 11:47. Let me try to find it in my notes here. And they gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees, a council, and said... What do we? For this man doth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. Oh, we'll lose our power and our authority and our position. What are we going to do? This God Jesus is getting too powerful. <coughs> and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. And then one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people. Caiaphas just chose the lamb. 
and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. All the way from the beginning, clear back in Exodus, when on the 10th day of Nisan, they chose a lamb. They watched that lamb for four days. They made sure that that lamb was completely spotless. There was absolutely no flaw in that lamb. And then on the 14th day of Nisan, every single year, they killed the lamb. This year, in, in A.D. 32, the high priest picked the lamb, but it wasn't a little four-footed woolly thing. It was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That lamb, that high priest was, was right. He prophesied despite himself. God used him to proclaim truth. And that truth was that he chose the Lamb of God that would wash away the sins of all the world. And that led to that day of crucifixion for Christ. Four days later, the same crowd that threw Palm branches, the same crowd that, that, that yelled Hosanna, the same crowd that worshiped and proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, the same crowd said, crucify him. And we think such a tragedy, and it was, but yet it was a, it was a glorious tragedy because without that, our sins would still be relevant and we would still be living in them and we'd have no escape from them. But because the high priest picked the lamb that year and that lamb was nailed to a cross and he, was, he, he fulfilled the prophecy and the word of God and that lamb paid the price for our sin so that we didn't have to go to hell. We didn't have to burn in eternity because Jesus Christ is the king and the glorious lamb that went to the cross and then he resurrected. Then he came back to life. Then the Lord was raised him up and he is alive today on the right hand of the Father. Amen. What amazing story. I, this just got me excited when I was reading it. How amazing that scripture 500 years before it happened prophesied the very day that Jesus would enter the city. And the ones who didn't get it were the religious leaders. <laughs> The people were all throwing palm branches and worshiping. The religious leaders were the ones plotting his death. Today is a day that we remember that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. He came back alive and he bought our salvation. We're going to take a moment here and we're going to celebrate and worship him in communion. But I want you to remember that this faith that you have is not silly. It's not baseless. It's not empty. It's rational. It makes sense. It's logical. There's so many things in Scripture that prove that this Word is true. It has proven itself time and time again. Last year, at this time, I, I believe I went through all the extra-biblical evidences that Jesus Christ was real and He raised from the dead. I want us to realize that our faith is real and is relevant. And we serve a risen Savior, and He's in the world today. Amen. Can we pray a moment? Father, I pray, God, that You will establish our faith stronger than we've ever had before. Lord, as we realize how absolutely amazing it is what You did 173,880 days after it was prophesied, Jesus Christ fulfilled that prophecy. There's no human that could have done that, God. You did it. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for that. 
Lord, I thank you for victory that was won by a resurrected king, and salvation that was bought and paid for on a cross. And I thank you for resurrecting from that cross to buy our victory. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Could I have the board help out with communion, please? And they will serve you. And we are going to take a moment to recognize just how important the bread and the blood is. And as they're doing this, I want to read a passage of scripture that I want you to keep in mind. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter 11. Let me grab some real quick before you take off. Thank you. First Corinthians chapter 11 <clears throat> says, verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup. When he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament of my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever, and I think it's imperative as a pastor that I read this to you before we do this. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. What does that mean? What does unworthily mean? If your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you haven't sold your heart and your life out to Jesus Christ, if this is just a ritual to you, if this is just something that you have to do when you go to church, that's unworthily. We have to realize the broken body. Like Becky was talking about that, that death that Jesus died on the cross for us, that payment that he paid was so extraordinary. And he bought our salvation with his precious and holy blood. And if we take that flippantly, if we take that, uh, I don't know, without recognizing the weight of that sacrifice that's unworthy examine yourself scripture says make sure that you know the lord jesus christ as your lord and savior and he has bought you and paid for you and you have your name is written in the lamb's book of life that's imperative that's absolutely imperative <clears throat> Thank you, gentlemen. You're welcome. The fact that Jesus Christ's body was broken for us is one of the most amazing things that ever happened. Probably the most amazing thing that ever happened in history. When a people that were lost and bound for eternity in hell were paid for by the blood of a king. How amazing is that? For I received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Will you take the bread prayerfully? Father, praise you, Father. Hallelujah. Father, thank you for the bread. Thank you for your body that was broken for us. Thank you, Lord, for suffering, excruciating pain and anguish for us. Thank you, Lord. As a king, you didn't have to pay that price, but you did. Thank you. Hallelujah. After the same manner also, he took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death until he come. You take the cup. Hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, I thank you for a body that was broken, for blood that was spilled for our sin. I thank you, Lord, that this boy that was judged unworthy because of my sin, judged, sentenced to an eternity in hell, but God, instead of that, you paid the price to redeem me. Praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, God, that you paid that price. You won the victory for us through your shed blood. And on this day, we want to recognize you once again and worship and glorify you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. Hallelujah.